I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Lisa Picard, former CEO of Blackstone's office investment platform, EQ Office, and advisor to Sway Ventures. Lisa's 25-year career spans across nearly every area in real estate, having developed $8 billion plus in complex ground-up projects across office, multifamily, hospitality, and mixed use. As the CEO of EQ Office, Lisa led a 200-person organization and was responsible for the strategy for a real estate portfolio valued at over $27 billion. Lisa has a track record for innovative, high-quality projects that push the market in areas of customer experience and sustainability. Prior to Blackstone, she opened the West Coast office for Skanska Commercial Development, launching four development deals in five years, valued at over $3 billion, each with a successful exit to institutional investors. Earlier in her career, Lisa held leadership positions at Canyon Ranch Resorts and Heinz and spent several years developing investment strategies for three different institutional funds on new and existing multifamily and industrial assets. Lisa holds two master's degrees from MIT and continues to lecture on topics including design thinking and mindful leadership, as well as driving innovation and understanding risk. In our conversation, we talk about the power of communication as a principle of leadership and lessons learned during COVID, the future of the office market and how sharpshooters are best positioned going forward, and how the current market environment is the mother of all resets and what that means for real estate, technology, and the communities we live in. Let's get into it. Lisa, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You have one of the most interesting backgrounds in commercial real estate that I've ever come across. I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves and maybe talk us through your journey in commercial real estate. I guess I would say I started my career maybe in high school, (laughs) which was sort of, you know, walking along the city streets and realizing sort of the impact that the size of the sidewalk and everything really had on kind of how I felt. And as a result of that, I actually went into urban design, urban planning, an undergrad and started to work in private planning practice, like doing, you know, horizontal design for Irvine company back in the day, laying out golf courses, et cetera. And then I noticed these people called developers actually controlled the design decisions. And I didn't quite understand why they were making the decisions that they were, because it kind of didn't make sense to me. So that's when I went actually back to grad school and got a master's in real estate finance and a master's in really urban economics and started working in investment advising. I went to MIT and then I went to to San Francisco and worked for a boutique investment advising firm where we basically did everything as sort of a project manager. We bought things, we managed those things or asset managed the things that we we bought and then we also were responsible for the exit. And it was actually a phenomenal opportunity to sort of see the whole the whole journey of the real estate investment process. But ultimately I wanted to get into development. And Heinz hired me, moved me up to Seattle 
And that's really where I kind of built my career. And I would say, you know, I had this unbelievable opportunity to, you know, in the dot-com era (laughs) to build over a million square feet of spec office space and have, you know, tech companies lease it and then had to unlease it and then release it again. (laughs) Right. Uh, Sounds familiar. And then I, yeah. And then, you know, I I think, you know, through the dot-com bomb, you realized in some of these West Coast markets that the office market wasn't going to be back for 10 years because we had way too much supply. And I started building multifamily apartments. And I also had a stint of working for Kenyon Ranch and being their head of real estate. It's probably one of the most well-known hospitality brands with just 200 keys. And I would say that that experience working there was probably the most, gosh, the most kind of critical insight, sort of change moment in my real estate profession, because I really got exposure to the hospitality world. I got exposure to what experience does to kind of create value for the consumer. Because, you know, this was at a time before even hospitality was entering into the multifamily world. And, you know, this was a brand that, quite honestly, when people went to Canyon Ranch, surveyed, you know, when they surveyed, when they left, 90% of these people left saying their life was forever changed. So there's something pretty special that this brand was doing to people. And actually we were, you know, working to kind of create an opportunity where people could sort of live that lifestyle. Zoom forward, you know, I left that experience wanting to be back in, in Seattle and Skanska hired me to essentially lead the West Coast development. And we developed some unique assets. And the reason why I took that job is because Skanska was really building uh, everything off their balance sheet. There's no lenders, there's no investors. And if you're a developer, you understand that wherever money comes from is largely who controls the decisions and what gets built. And lenders sort of control the decision based upon managing risk. And really the way they manage risk is building everything that they've always seen and built before. So you really have very little innovation that happens in the real estate space because in in essence, we say it's capitally intensive. And so this was a remarkable opportunity in where I like to say I I built crazy shit. (laughs) I hope I can start that on your your podcast. And really what I was doing, I was building things that the market craved and was sort of a little bit risky from the standpoint that people hadn't seen it before. And John Gray happened to walk into one of those assets and said, oh my God, we need people who know how to do this. And I got a call and, you know, was brought on board to Blackstone. It was sort of a chance of a lifetime to go, you know, take their existing portfolio of things that they had bought that were actually horribly, you know, performing from sort of a, a tenant desire perspective and, and really help them, you know, sort of shed this office space that they had acquired. And that was a great run for five years of where I helped them dispose of basically 11 billion of office real estate and really retool a whole team. And what I realized is that, you know, the efficiency of, of, of real estate, you know, we hadn't really adopted much. We're, we're the least to the least, the industry that has least adopted technology. And so I started looking at technology and ways in which we could sort of change cost structure and also, you know, improve upon the user experience. And so when I left, I really wanted to spend some time in venture. And I spent some time with, with Sway Ventures, now an advisor to Sway but basically helping founders and working with startups to really approach this industry to help accelerate the change. And now I'm really excited about, you know, the the sort of the confluence of both physical assets and digital assets, because I think that's actually going to be where real value comes from in the future. So I'm spending my time, you know, pondering sort of the world, the, the changes in real estate, the future of cities. I'm speaking, 
And I'm really, you know, doing some consulting work in that realm, but looking for kind of my next move in that. And it's got to be right of where I want to spend my knowledge. Well, certainly didn't disappoint on the uh, the opening statement of, of varied and impressive. So there's a lot to unpack, which we'll go through over the next you know little while here through our conversation. You know, let, let's maybe start with your your time at, at Skanska in Seattle. I think one of the things, or on the West Coast, one of the things that you said is you built crazy shit. What are one or two of the projects that you're kind of most proud of that, you know, weren't supposed to happen, but ostensibly did and, and yeah. uh, turned out really well? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that was sort of happening in commercial real estate at the time is that, you know, a lot of people were really driving real estate decisions by pro formas and not really about uh, the experience they were providing on the ground plane. And it was really sort of destroying the city, if you will, because we sort of had these ground floors that were occupied by the tenants that could actually pay the rent, the subways, the Jimmy John's, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's sort of like the, the retail experiences that are, are actually least desirable by the people who live above them. And when I say live, I mean also sort of work above them. And there's these really unbelievable, you know, neighborhoods in cities like San Francisco and, and even in Boston and, and Seattle for that matter. And, you know, if we could live and work in those neighborhoods, we would love it. And so how could we actually bring neighborhood to the city? So we really started to kind of curate the experience. And, you know, in essence, we sort of created a Chelsea market above above an office building, you know, probably at the time that Chelsea Market was was really starting to kind of surge. And the volume that we created on the ground plane, we actually had a a beer pub that was at the entry to the office lobby. I mean, it was just unheard of because office lobbies were supposed, supposed to be these mausoleums and these statements to the corporation. And really people wanted these statements of like the communities they were a part of. And so we really shifted that statement of like, oh, we're not going to build these like massive concrete, you know, our sort of marbled ma uh, mausoleums, which were a statement to the corporations that built them and a statement to the companies. Because, you know, back in the day when those were built in the 80s, they were really kind of like these symbols that, this, that the corporation was going to be around for a long time. I mean, why did Sears build the Sears Tower? I mean, even though, you know, they, they were the statement of the longevity and the strength of this company. And people didn't give a shit about that stuff, right? They really gave a concern about sort of, you know, what are the cool things they got to do? What was the coffee shop they got to be a part of? What was the the bar they got to hang out with or the lobbies they got to, you know, socialize in? And so we really sort of flipped that on its head, you know, and I would say we maybe had like a two or 3% premium for building these kinds of things because we ultimately got 30% increases in rents, you know, for people who wanted to be a part of it. And my ultimate goal was, you know, to have sort of the tenant lobby board and people walk by and say, I just want to get to see who gets to work here, you know? And in fact, that actually happened. So that was one of us, a project called 400 Fairview in Seattle. We were building a large office tower in downtown Seattle. And the whole notion was that like, God, these office buildings really just sort of destroy the urban environment. So what can we do to get it out of the way? So we had this kind of unique zoning on the site, which really didn't have a height limit. It had an FAR limit, which means the amount of massing you can actually put on the site, the amount of built product. So what we did is we lifted the whole office building kind of 80 feet off the ground and we built a village underneath this. Underneath this. And so what, what holds a village together? It's like all these different buildings, but their roof textures were all the same. And so we sort of played around with, with that idea as well. We built Brooks Sports headquarters into kind of a kind of a living building. We built them a trailhead on the city's most loved urban trail. So those are the kinds of things we sort of like looked at the customer and we designed it for the customer where I think when you look at the commercial office market, 
because these things have traditionally been 10, 15 year long leases, the customer has been the capital markets who buy these bonds of the long-term leases. And the problem is, is that when these leases get shorter, I mean, like think about what happened with like apartment buildings when the average lease term became 12 months, you really had to introduce hospitality, right? Because hospitality has a turn every night. And so you really have to depend on your brand and the experience so that you can get more consumers to kind of come in. And office is actually turning more towards the customer and the consumer and has to introduce more hospitality. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, brands like we work that, you know, obviously were jet fueled, you know, come into the space and offer a little aspect of hospitality. And I think more of that is to come if office, call it the workplace and commercial office is going to be successful. I could uh, riff on this with you forever. I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about you know, kind of through your career. And then we'll go back to talk about some of the market fundamentals and the changes that we think are underway over the next, you know, decades. Do you know which building it was that John Gray walked into? Because I think a lot of people would think that that's their dream that triggered it. Or is that more of like a metaphorical statement? No, it's more of a fair view. Yeah, it's a a real, real occurrence. And because it is, it is pretty drastically different. And I remember the moment, actually, when we were building it, and the volume was so big, and we walked and I walked through it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I was like, no, no, no. The market, the market is going to like understand this and feel this space. And yeah, so it was 400 Fairview and the building was almost designed, I mean, with a, with a great architectural team, but all of us understood the vision of what we were creating, including all the craft trade that were actually working on the project. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty magical project. And it today it's, it's a, it's a great space in the city and people know it by the retailers. They don't know it by the the name of the building they know it by the the retailers who are there and that's that's totally fine interesting <laughs> that's awesome so then so you leave you take this great opportunity opportunity of a lifetime at blackstone massive office portfolio clearly not built to the design standard of 400 fairview you mentioned you know one of your big areas of responsibility was to dispose of or or kind of fix the portfolio so how would you i mean it's you know there's probably a lot to unpack but how would you kind of like summarize what your role was leading, you know, the office portfolio for Blackstone and kind of like, how do you break that down or compartmentalize some of the different responsibilities or kind of things that you were able to achieve there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to say that like I hadn't worked in private equity before. And so understanding sort of the pressures was probably the first year, you know, in private equity and, and realizing that the capital that was deployed to buy these assets it was really deployed on the theory that essentially you're going to double double your money, you know, over a five-year hold, right? And so, you know, much of this portfolio had been held for 10 years and that's okay as long as you sort of like, you know, triple quadruple the money at the time that you exit. But the goal was really to exit out of the real estate and exit out at a time when, you know, hopefully the market's, you know, on, on the upswing. And, you know, a lot of this stuff had been bought at a really, really low basis. So it was just really getting this stuff leased up. Right. And so getting things leased up really have to do with really its curb appeal and obviously, you know, its ability to attract tenancy. And so how do you and and a lot of this stuff, you know, was suburban office stuff, which is really, you know, tough to to work through. And some of it was like Willis Tower, which was, you know, in Chicago's loop. And so, you know, which was this 1970s building. It was a behemoth that had a huge, you know, office lobby had all of this sort of podium that didn't make sense. And yet it had close to, you know, over, over 3 million square feet there that was sitting in one building, you know, it's just sort of daunting, you know, how many people would show up in this building and you have this 
captive audience, including the sky deck, which is, you know, the highest revenue floor in the whole entire building, which is crazy. It was like 20% of the, of the buildings, you know, total overall revenue. All these people are showing up in the building and there's an opportunity to monetize that, to have more wallet share than sort of give it away to the rest of the city. So we really, you know, we spent a couple of years repositioning the whole base of that building and, you know, fighting a little bit with the, with the local architects who really wanted to build this in the Chicago style. And their vision of the Chicago style was, you know, everything that had been built in the past. And so what we really wanted to do was build, you know, something of that Fulton market was kind of exploding in Chicago. And it was all of this sort of like really unique, you know, kind of fabric to the building. And so we repositioned it. So a lot of my role was really retooling the team to understand you didn't have to do everything that was built before. In fact, we could rethink who the customer was, understand who the customer was and design that. You know, and I think in my tenure there, Blackstone started to attract different forms of capital. And that included sort of a core fund, which was, you know, quote unquote, an evergreen fund. So it was sort of like, can we buy assets and hold them forever? And, you know, could an office asset be held forever? I sort of like internally debated about that because I've always been a developer where you sort of build something and you kind of like turn it over to sort of the next ownership. And I would argue today, you know, sitting here with the knowledge that I do have that, you know, office assets are probably the fastest to reach obsolescence. They really age very, very quickly. There's a next new thing that kind of gets built. The thing that you really have to focus on, it's very, very sharp shooting, is the location. So Blackstone had sort of the opportunistic fund, which is really what I came in under. They added the core fund. And then this became this B-REIT vehicle, right? Which was really going to be sort of this evergreen fund that obviously they could trade in and out. It would be sort of a liquid, hopefully liquid investment for investors. And that capital was coming in so fast. And really there was a need to deploy that capital pretty quickly in sort of like I would say, stabilized office assets. They were very difficult to find, didn't make a lot of sense, quite honestly, you know, because so many of them were overpriced, you know, based upon where we had zero interest rates. And so some of these things, you know, were you were taking the inordinate amount of risk for for those investments. So I saw sort of this role of like exiting out of this real estate and really continuing to exit out of this real estate, really kind of morph and shift to sort of thinking about where is capital allocation. And I think at that at that stage, I was, I was least prepared to sort of really deal with capital allocation because I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate fixer. <laughs> I'm a real estate builder, you know, those kinds of things. So that, that's kind of how I would tell you sort of the, the, the role when I entered it in, into it and the role like morphing and changing company, changing culture, you know, within, you know, sort of three years of an organization that we were downscaling, 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 right? Because when you're selling off assets, you're also selling off team and team members, you're restructuring the organization. We never were not structuring the organization. There was a constant restructure that was happening. And that was really professionally challenging and also very rewarding to do. So one of the things you mentioned early on is, you know, maybe the first year was kind of understanding and appreciating the differences between development and private equity you know, you just mentioned at the end, you know, one of those was this constant iteration of, you know, structuring and restructuring. What else struck you initially as different about private equity as it compared to development? I'm sure some of them are obvious, but I know a lot of listeners are, hey, I'm a developer and I want to get into private equity or, hey, I'm private equity and I'd prefer to be a developer. You've done both. Yeah. I mean, I think there is this, you know, absolute militant discipline to sort of your spreadsheet. You know, and I think there's a lot of dependency on, 
you know, your sort of past metrics and the metrics. And I think as a developer, we work sort of creatively and we sort of have this vision about there is new value to be created. It's very hard for private equity to understand that unless it's sort of seen it and can understand it in another market or in another sort of like, you know, proximate area. And I think like private equity, you know, we, we had a hard time sort of thinking about how development would work. There's also this very deep relationship, the same thing in, in, in development, but how development would work with, you know, within the model, because essentially you've got to basically, you know, 2X the return and not take any risk <laughs> somehow. And so a lot of that is like buying, you know, below replacement cost. And when you're developing, you're not ever buying below replacement cost. So, you know, a lot of those deals for Blackstone were really done in a JV relationship, just because I think there's there was this inherent fear around development. You know, I would say sort of that there is there is this absolute discipline to the spreadsheet probably is the the thing that I kind of pull away and I sort of take with. And, you know, there's always sort of this need to like, let's look at the math on that, right? You know, as opposed to, I would say, creatively thinking the exercise and really making a market. There's no, to me, I, there wasn't a making of the market, right? There was sort of like, you know, finding the opportunities to sort of arbitrage a moment when values or we could buy by the bottle and sell by the shop. You know, I think that is sort of the kind of the classic private equity model. Yeah. So you had, so, so last question on Blackstone, what your, your tenure there, what were the years just so we can orient? Cause Mark has been through a lot of tumult. Yeah. Yeah. So I came in in late 2016 and really became the CEO in 2017. And then in essence left at the beginning of 22. 22. Okay. So you were there through kind of the, the, pandemic. the pandemic. All right. Yeah. So yeah. Managing a team through the pandemic when really every day you're looking at the press, that's telling you that you're, you're your sector is dead. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I wasn't going to go there, but since you took me there, like leadership lessons, you know, what would you, you know, what did you take away from that experience? Obviously very challenging. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was pretty fascinating for me is that, you know, when everybody was in person and the moment you sort of retreated into your own homes, you know, people left to their own devices will create their own stories. Right. And so, we went to actually having an all hands. We had an all hands once a quarter, you know, with a staff of 200 people, right? Across, spread across the United States. And then we went to basically being on a call, just status and updating and talking through stuff every week, right? Then we kind of dropped back to every other week, but it was almost sort of like these raw raws hold it together. <laughs> and it was kind of fascinating because, you know, people who their spouses, who their company or their leadership, wasn't having any communication. They were sticking to sort of a quarterly or even a monthly schedule. They had their spouses listen into our calls because it was some somehow sort of like this satisfying way of, of feeling resilient, you know, and connected to something because like the minute you're sort of pulled in retreat and you're left to your own devices, you really, your mind starts to think and wonder and position itself as thinking that the world is falling apart. And so, you know, even after I left, like people were saying, oh my gosh, I'm really disappointed you're leaving, but you know, who's more disappointed is my spouse. <laughs> I love that. So I think, you know, what the big lessons was like over communicating and that this, the, the over communicating was one, you create a resilient labor force. But the other thing was, is that like the messaging of the direction of where we were going as a company got reinforced so fast. It was, it was astounding to me. And even though I felt like I was repeating myself, you know, every other week, you know, it took like two or three weeks for things to start 
set in as opposed to two or three quarters, right? So the over-communication really accelerated the growth of people, the resiliency of our people, and also the resiliency of the organization. That was probably one of the biggest learnings, you know, during that time, you know, in, in leadership. And I just think that like, you know, continuing to plan and to sort of think through and ideate and create ways of which you can connect with your customer. We did a lot. We continue to do a lot of work as opposed to sort of like be in the defense. Because I think what happens is when you're in remote, you tend to just rely on all the things you knew how to do and all the things you have been doing as, a, doing as opposed to like really engaging in kind of new work. And the offense piece was is really hard for organizations when they're kind of pulled in remote, even now when you're sort of doing a lot of hybrid work. And so how do you actually get leadership involved? Because I think there is a dearth of leadership. There's a lot of managing. There's a, like a, lock, a lack of leadership. And so we really instilled within our teams and within our leaders to really be leaders yeah. during this time. I love that. Well, we'll save that for a whole episode that I'm sure we can do on leadership. So you had mentioned at the outset, you spent... Through your time at Blackstone, one of the realizations and earlier in your career was the role that technology could play on the evolving office space. And that led you to sway. Let's spend a little bit of time. Like, what was that connection more specifically that you saw when you said there's something more to do here? Technology is an enabler. Like, what was it about technology that you were hoping to unlock for real estate and for all? Yeah, I've, I've actually written a few pieces on this on my Medium channel. But I've also like, I believe that, you know, if you look at how little investment has actually happened to the real estate sector, that's one that like all the things that we sort of expect and have in our everyday normal life, you know, whether it be now with our cars or with our, in our homes, you know, it doesn't exist in the real estate world. I mean, it's why, why do we still have to like hunt around, you know, for 15 minutes for a parking space in our cities or in a, you know, in a shopping center or even at the airport, right? Like some of these things could just be better planned or processed. That's just a really crude example that everybody probably experiences at some point in time, uh, if you drive a car. (laughs) But also like, you know, we've had 20 years of deflationary pressures. And I say deflationary pressures, you know, on businesses, you know, whether it be the offshoring and our supply chains getting cheaper, that that wasn't going to last forever. In fact, it didn't, right? And so I knew that there was going to be inflationary pressures across the entire, you know, P&L, right? And I knew that labor was going to get, and labor was getting more expensive. I mean, every year was getting more expensive. It was also getting harder to find because the lack of talent and the lack of people who are maybe entering, you know, certain aspects of the profession were going to get tougher. That A, we needed to figure out how to like get, you know, machines, algorithms, things to do the things that actually humans don't want to do. (laughs) And quite frankly, aren't that good at doing, right? So we started to kind of like play around with various areas of technology to start to just augment our labor force. I mean, if you think about it, most property managers have 150 things they need to do on a property in a day, and they have time for 10, right? And it's largely just because we haven't actually deployed the technology, but also I think, you know, because they have 150 things to do, they don't actually want to learn a new thing because that's just one more thing they have to do. So introducing technology into the property stack is very, very difficult for that reason. And so, because normally what you have to do is you have to sort of run analog and digital side by side because people only trust the analog. And so when you introduce sort of a digital solution that, yeah, it's going to save them half the time, they don't trust it. They actually have to do both of them at the same time, which is like double the work. And you just have to get through that phase and leadership has to support it. But my point is it has to be done and it's not, it's not getting done. And so 
I was deeply interested in motivating, creating space for the workforce to actually introduce technology and people got excited about it. And we are, we actually started to see improvements in, you know, I, I, I'm a deep believer of like removing labor from the back and pushing people to the front so that the human experience is actually better and not like, you know, driving technology or UX to the, to the forefront and then pushing more of your labor force to the back. I think it's the inverse. And a lot of the technology that came forward into the real estate sector was really driving more UX and upfront sort of consumer customer sort of interfacing stuff, which I think is good if it actually takes pain points out and solves problems. But a lot of it wasn't solving problems. It was creating more problems. So anyway, I got deeply interested in how we can actually work some more deflationary pressure on our expenses and really started to deploy it. And I also saw some some resistance, you know, within within Blackstone for expenditure and spending time on that. And I understand it because it's sort of like it's not what it's not the way we've always done it. And there is some experimentation that needs to happen and it can cost some money. But ultimately the deployment of the right technology is shown to be incredibly incredibly deflationary and also, you know, in enhancing the productivity of your labor force. And we, we noticed that. So I wanted to spend more time on that specifically and helping founders because we'd see founders that were trying to introduce themselves into this marketplace. And those founders really didn't understand sort of fee structures, costs, like all of those kinds of dynamics that can really inhibit whether or not a company will adopt the technology because there are really sort of wonky fee and cost structures, how you develop how you assess fees, how you pay for things, who pays for what, whether it's the tenant or whether it's the the property. So those kinds of things, I really wanted to help founders so that we can accelerate technological improvement within the industry as a whole. Are there any specific areas, I mean, that, that you either were or are focused on? Is it fair to say like kind of the built environment, the physical plant of the asset, or are you looking as broad as kind of the urban fabric of cities and everything in between? I, I've been deeply interested in you know, areas that actually provide immediate ROI for owners. Because essentially, when you start having interest rates rise, you, you suddenly have an, an enormous new cost structure that is just, you know, it starts to, starts to choke hold most assets. And so what do you need to do is you need to figure out how to take costs out of the equation. So, you know, I was looking at sort of technologies that, you know, removed expenditures, whether it be on elevator maintenance, whether it be on you know how how often you had to cap spend capex on equipment. So if you were monitoring and managing equipment, and you were sort of tracking vendors, etc., you knew that like oh that this the MEP equipment only had half the load it normally has has on it. So actually we can extend the capex expenditure. We don't need to spend it this year. We'll spend it next year. You know those kinds of things I thought were appropriate uses of immediate technology that can get deployed now. I'm deeply interested in a lot of the technology that's starting to kind of organize, you know, the in-house data so that essentially the generative AI models when they're here, they're not necessarily here yet, can actually be layered on top so that, you know, the, the data doesn't necessarily be structured, but people who are inquisitive and not have a curiosity level can begin to ask really smart questions and begin to create new investment strategies based upon the data that's held internally, because that will be powerful as we're we're finding out with other organizations that have organized, not maybe necessarily organized, but have collected the data of their customers, consumers, and just the business. Those are some areas I'm deeply, deeply interested in. The whole sort of like cap table, financing structures, managing, 
you know, your debt. A lot of those are super interesting to me. And I think there's still a lot of room to run in terms of how they integrate with, you know, the operations of the building, how they integrate with, you know, understanding the customer and organizing sort of your capital structure for the assets and organization. And then all the way to getting a better understanding of your customer and designing the product and gearing the services more appropriately to the consumer, like that has happened in every industry on the planet with the exception of real estate. I mean, we're starting to see a, a lot more of that in hospitality, quite frankly, but the hospitality model still is, you know, if you look at the big giants, they haven't really morphed their model to really accommodate what the consumer wants. We're seeing modifications of, of new typologies of hospitality enter the space that is more tech-driven and probably less service up front. And then you don't need to necessarily have all the service level that kind of comes with these really expensive hotel models. I do think, Brandon, you know, what, what's going to be really interesting is that technology has always created asset classes. I mean, you can sort of look back to sort of the creation of the elevator, you know, obviously allowed uses to get vertical to, you know, most recently the discovery of life science by, you know, bioscience has created a whole life science sector, right? And then if you look at data centers, you look at cell towers, I think we're going to see some new asset classes come forward in the real estate category that is driven specifically by technology. And, you know, you can't really get into the data center space or the cell tower space unless you understand the technology. <laughs> so, you know, understanding some of these forthcoming technologies and, you know, what it's going to create in our cities is really important to me. So if you're a founder listening to this podcast right now, you know, you've been in the venture partner seat, you've, you know, educated, advised, invested with founders, you know, what should founders know about kind of the real estate venture, real estate technology space that, you know, you would only appreciate if you've kind of been deeply inside of it like you have? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been a part of a shop that is sort of like a specialist generalist. And there are generalist VCs out there that sort of, you know, believe they can kind of invest in everything. And I do, I do think there's a little bit of, or a lot of bit of gambling as it relates to that. And then there's various sort of prop tech specific venture organizations. Look, you know, after being in it, I think, you know, the whole prop tech space, it's, it's very hard to find, you know, a way in which you're going to create a valuation that's going to do 100x, you know, value in, you know, the time frame that venture really, you know, expects these wins to happen. I think the, the, the sort of the prop tech investor who has a deep knowledge of real estate and can give guidance to those founders about how to structure, how to think about, you know, the way their product market fit, how their pricing model works, you know, at least, you know, they can look at sort of a trajectory of where they're going to have, you know, a medium term success. Cause I don't think like quick short term success in the real estate sector is really possible, quite honestly, just because of how long it takes for adoption. You know, one technology, even, you know, if I'm implementing June or square over here and I'm going to go, you know, implement a PM service module or I'm going to implement some construction tech within the company. Both of those are taking resources of the company and they're actually competing with each other. So you're, you're dealing with like a lot of areas in the whole real estate organization that really need technology. And so the focus really has to be solving on a current problem, a current problem that every real estate owner is facing. Because if you're just getting, I mean, I'll tell you a lot of the tenant experience apps were sort of like, 
you know, these sort of shiny, glossy objects, which weren't really solving a problem. They were sort of like, hey, you've got to monetize your customers. You got to get more wallet share. Today, you actually have to solve a problem. You have to deliver immediate ROI. That, that is sort of the, the first advice I would give to any founder who's in the prop tech space or is looking to kind of approach the real estate sector. And then I just believe that the whole industry as a whole is just, it just takes longer to generate, you know, the, the kind of like significant player returns that is going to be, you know, dominant. I mean, even, even if you look at sort of how long it took Airbnb to kind of come forward, it was sort of a disruptive player and it's almost, almost kind of its solitary space. It kind of created a whole new category within hospitality. Most of these sort of players are creating some sort of middleware that's just going to take some time to, to evolve. And I don't know if every prop tech VC, you know, believes that. I mean, they certainly haven't sell, sold the fund dynamics, you know, based upon that. But I do believe that the, the venture capitalists in the prop tech space that do come and have an understanding of real estate will be the most successful in this category. And so, you know, really play, play towards them. Yeah. Good advice. So let's kind of move into the, the, the kind of the core, you know, office building. You've, you've used a few words. I mean, we've talked about the relatively slow rate of adoption of change for our industry. We've talked about the massive oversupply and potential obsolescence of office space. We've talked about the impacts that COVID has had on the psyche of our workforce. Like all of those things essentially come to a head in the urban fabric or the fabric of our cities and the utilization of office. And what do we do? So it's intentionally a broad question to get us started. But, you know, through your lens, like how are you beginning to approach, you know, the future of office, if you will, and, and maybe, you know, start, start up here and we can, we can kind of work together to, to unpack that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've sort of said that, you know, office is facing a triple whammy and the first, you know, major whammy that the office of commercial office market is facing is the fact that there's a secular shift. I think in prior cycles, we could sort of say, Hey, there's a cyclical you know, sort of shift, you know, we've got sort of like a change in employment because essentially the office market has been strongly tied to kind of hiring and job dynamics. There'd be somewhat, you know, based upon the cost of real estate, you might see some consolidation or some compression in terms of how much space a user would use. But I think the secular shift is just almost a cultural one that kind of came about. It was really present before the pandemic, but I think it really accelerated during the pandemic in which there's this, you know, shift of, I would almost call it lifestyle. And you see it predominantly kind of in the West Coast cities, probably more so with the technology companies that were resistant to kind of really draw people back. But it's obviously the return to office call has been a lot stronger now. But even then, so the occupancy of the utilization of these office buildings is probably, you know, let's call it you know, 30% off of where it was pre-pandemic. And this secular shift is really changing the whole city dynamics. And if you think about the fact that, you know, some companies are doing, oh, we're doing, you know, in, in office presence Tuesday to Thursday, some companies realize that that's actually like the worst days of traffic and we don't want to be a part of that. So let's sort of like, you know, shift counter to that. You know, fundamentally what's happening is the retail that we all love in our cities and the reasons why we go against that friction is to be a part of something. And to have all of the amenities and services that are right there present to find, to get food, to, you know, if it's like to get something cleaned or if it's like you get to see your doctor or your dentist or whatever it might be, like there's this sort of concentration 
that like that whole economic model is relying on 30% of the, the demand not being present. And even though their rents haven't changed. And so it's a lot of the reason why we also see sort of a lot of our restaurants and cities, you know, shift to Wednesdays to Sundays. It's really hard to find a restaurant that's open, you know, Monday or Tuesday, right? So I think that, you know, cities have to really engage in a different cost model. So there's this first whammy, which is just that the foundations of demand are shifting. The second piece has a lot to do that, you know, over the last 10 years, we've oversupplied, you know, the office product and we've overbuilt it. And in in fact, we'd usually see like one to one and a half percent of the inventory getting replaced per year in a city. And some cities like Austin have eight to nine percent of that inventory getting replaced. Right. And so consistently over over the past few years, and I would say consistently over the past 10 years, we've seen like two to three to four percent in some of these like really high growth cities. And so we had this massive oversupply. And the interesting statistics is that if you look at office that is older than eight years old which is basically saying that it's still, it's, it's maybe getting past its first lease cycle, right? Because most for new brand new buildings have like, most owners of a brand new building really dictate that if you want to be in this brand new building, you have to sign a 10 or 12 year lease. And that's really to kind of pay for the improvements that are put into place. So after that first 10 or 12 year lease burns off, right? That building loses points of occupancy every year of its existence. And so in other words, like really random obsolescence. So we have all of this office product out there now, which is, I think the national vacancy or availability rate is over 30%, right? And if you look at like a lot of these buildings have been financed, majority of them have been financed, right? Whether it be with regional banks or insurance companies, you know, where they require a 60% loan to value. In other words, they borrow 60%, right? Or 65%. And in some cases, that's gotten even higher to like 70%. Some of these aren't going to be able to, many of these aren't going to be able to afford the mortgage when the vacancies come forward. Another interesting stat is that in between now and the year of 2025, 35% of all leases that are out there will expire. And so when they do come up for expiration, you know, some are renewing. I mean, the big law firm in, in New York just renewed and they actually didn't downsize, which is pretty remarkable. But when they renew, the, the common tendency today is actually downsize because they don't need as much space as they had. I mean, we had, you know, the, the, the predominant leaser, you know, in the last five years has been these technology companies that have gone and leased massive amounts of space and they buy, new, they basically lease new buildings. When you lease a new building, and you have to sign a 10-year lease and you're assuming, you know, you're going to grow, let's say 5% a year, you know, or 10% a year, actually, they're assuming 10% growth. You have to get double the space you need today than what you're using today. And so all of these tech companies did this. And keep in mind, in like 2021 to 2020, so that one year, 2021 to 2022, the majority of these tech companies hired, they, they increased their labor force by 30% in one year, 30%. And so then they also like got, went and secured office space. If you were like Meta, or if you were, if you were Microsoft or Salesforce, et cetera. And now, you know, if you look at the stats, they've only actually shed about a third of what they've hired in 2021. So even though these like mass layoffs, right? So I think, you know, the amount of demand is going to be reduced from the fact that like we've changed the working model and yet we haven't defined it yet. 
I mean, I think this is a huge opportunity for both technology and also physical assets is to redefine what work looks like, right? And I'm spending time with some owners on what does that look like and how do we reshape it so it actually gets people inspired to drive against the friction to kind of come to this new thing. What is this new thing, right? And I think that that's super exciting to me. But to do that, I actually think that the valuations of where office has been, you know, they've already gotten reset from the public market perspective, probably 30, 35%, they're off. And the private markets haven't reset yet. They're a little bit like, I think, alcoholics who have like cirrhosis of the liver and they're not, you know, maybe they've stopped drinking, but they still haven't actually gotten help to sort of like, you know, ameliorate the situation. So we have a lot of sort of like sick people out there that aren't getting help and they'll stall it for a long time because the perception is, is that that's weakness and it's hard to raise money or get people to kind of party with you if you're not drinking, right? To keep carrying the analogy. So I think we're going to have a mother of all resets in cities. And that mother of all resets is actually welcomed because that is the moment of innovation. We can't innovate at the price levels right now, but the minute these things get underwritten to 20 cents on the dollar, 30 cents on the dollar, there's a lot of interesting innovation that can happen. People sort of move in with ideas and test what a workplace might look like. But when I have to spend 80 bucks a foot a year on a rent versus 10 bucks a foot or 15 bucks or 20 bucks a foot, I'm likely not to take the space or I'm likely to find solutions that, you know, get me by until there's sort of a reset. So that's, that's the, the second whammy. The third whammy really has to do with long-term interest rates. And I think there's been sort of this conventional thinking that long-term interest rates are actually going to come back down. And I think if we think that this inflationary number is going to be nagging for a lot longer, and I think we saw over these last couple of weeks that the central banks are sort of agreeing that, oh, I think this is going to actually be longer. And we saw the 30-year and the 10-year really blip up to a sort of a 15-year high, that if you know long-term interest rates are actually going to remain at a higher level than where they are before, what risk premium do I need to essentially hold a real estate asset? And if it's 200 basis points higher, in other words, I need to have a higher return, well, that means the values of these assets have been bloated for quite some time. And I will tell you, over the last 15 years, you could buy anything and make money, <laughs> you know? And those, those days are changed. You actually have to be a sharpshooter. You have to be a skilled real estate you know, individual. And it's largely the reason why I'm super excited to get back into it. So if you think about this capitulation that needs to happen in order to have the mother of all resets, to use your terminology, in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of sick people keeping with your approach. And, you know, there's doom doom cycle headlines, whether it's, you know, San Francisco or Portland or, you know, pick your favorite city that is in the headline for the day. Like, what is this, like, what is your thesis on the fundamental health of kind of gateway cities in this country? You know, you get a lot of the public market and even the privates, you know, the Odyssey funds who are core funds who by definition have to invest in these markets and gateway cities. So on one hand, you hear they're they're healthy and there's you know nothing to see here. Don't look at that headline. Look at this one, and you know everything will be okay. But on the other hand, there's people who are living on the ground, working in the buildings, or trying to, and are experiencing some of this hardship. It's a you know it's a social problem. It's a it's an economic problem. It's a civic problem. So kind of what do you how do you reconcile the timing gaps that might be required to see all this play out? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that private, a lot of private capital and private debt has kind of gone into this market, it's going to take a long time to sort of shake out. 
And I think the longer things go on, there's going to be a lot of opacity about, you know, what's buried where until like something big falls. And then I think the opacity sort of gets shook out. And so what's the kind of the famous quote is like, you know, how did you go bankrupt? It was very, very slow. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I think, I think that's what's going to happen in the office market, but, or, you know, in cities for, for, for example, but, you know, to your point about, you know, San Francisco, Portland, I mean, you know, cities have, have, have I mean, if you look at the history of San Francisco, they've had these boom bust cycles and these sort of like, you know, moments of where it's like, oh my God, they're never going to come back. Right. But, you, but we, we can't forget the fact that these are the centroids of where everybody's located. Right. And we're humans. And as humans, we want to be together. And so what's the natural point of where you want to be together is the centroid of where everybody's located. And so these centroids, yes, have a lot of political issues, have a lot of structural issues. But I do know that like, you know, you can take, you know, let's, let's, let's take even an example when refrigeration came in. It's a small example, but when refrigeration came in, the meat markets and the produce markets of every city died and went fallow. And these became sort of these like, vacant warehouses and until they got marked down, they became opportunities for artists and new food venues. And the next thing you know, everybody wants to be near that. And that's just one sort of small cycle of like, you know, technology can destroy, but then also sort of create. But it is like these, these moments for like, when you talk about the institutional investors and the pension funds have to invest in these gateway cities because they are, I mean, office assets have been these like big, chunky, long, you know, big, chunky assets. You can deploy a lot of capital. They've been obviously super awesome for the Blackstones, the Brookfields, the KKRs, because you can get a lot of capital out when the money comes in. Right. And that has now become sort of a moment of uncertainty. But I do think that this is not about going in and buying anymore, you know, 50 bushels of San Francisco office, right? You can't go, I mean, you could go in and buy 50 bushels of like Austin apartments. You can buy 50 bushels of Phoenix apartments based upon sort of the broader, you know, spreadsheet dynamics standing afar in New York, right? And I think what's going to happen, you know, office isn't going away. We all need places to come together and ideate, but is it going to be a complete sharpshooting business? You can't buy it from a spreadsheet. You actually have to know the local dynamics. And so, you know, the institutional investors have to be partnered with really smart local people who understand those dynamics and the energy of the grid and where it's going and how to keep feeding that energy because it is going to be super dynamic and there's going to be a lot of value to be had and there's going to be a lot of value lost. Do you think there's a scenario where some, I mean, let me ask the question differently, obsolescence, no matter at any price, I mean, what happens to some of these assets that is it just a situation where we start to tear them down and rebuild back better, something different that meets the needs of the time? Or, you know, do we kind of have zombie buildings that don't meet the sustainability codes that don't meet structural codes that are uninvestable and uninhabitable? I mean, how, how do we think about that? Yeah, I mean, the folks at buildingtransparency.org who do all sort of the carbon calculation for new buildings will tell you there's nothing more destructive than a new building, you know? And I think like people who, we like the ni nice new shiny object, but the fact of the matter is, is the reinvestment in existing infrastructure, and existing buildings, even if you reskin a building with like new glass, new chromatic glass or whatever it might be to make it look really good. I mean, granted, some of these interior spaces, you know, kind of a little bit of a column forest, but in some cases that's been very sexy to some companies in, in these like older brick and timber buildings. But my point is, is that 
I think the the notion of conversion to residential is a little overplayed because not all of these buildings can really accommodate, you know, that kind of intensity of plumbing and also the depths of these floor plates and office buildings don't actually work. So I think, Brandon, if you start seeing that, like, the way that this sort of model, the office model worked is that we funded all of your improvements. We assumed that we ripped all those improvements out and then we put in new approve- improvements every time a new tenant came in. I mean, can you imagine like an apartment building where like I went to go lease an apartment said, I like this, but I don't like where the kitchen is, like move it over here, right? And then that owner would go, well, how am I going to get recovery of that cost of ripping that all out? You need to sign a 10-year lease. And I'm like, well, I'm not signing a 10-year lease. I'm only doing a one-year lease. You know, we haven't really, like, I think, educated the market on, A, the sustainability of, or the non-sustainability of new buildings, <laughs> because they're enormously destructive to the environment. All the new con- concrete that's actually created for it versus the embodied, you know, carbon that's, you know, sitting in an existing office building. And many of those, like, floor plates and in, in, in portions of our city are, like, fantastic, right? So, but I think a lot gets solved in the creativity of what to use these spaces or how to think about these buildings when they get marked down in value. So we're almost out of time. We could go hours and hours and hours. I love this. It's fascinating. It takes me back to my early days when you and I met when I was with the Urban Land Institute. So it really strikes a chord. But for for people listening and, you know, kind of, you know, for whom the message that you have is is kind of resonating, I mean, what advice would you give to operators today if they also see this kind of, you know, shift, structural shift happening? And what's the best way to be a part of it, whether you're an owner, a capital provider, a technologist, like how how do you, how do you kind of summarize all this into something that's actionable? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point in a, you know, the, the, the first thing that I typically do is just sort of take inventory of what you have. Right. And then you also have to sort of take inventory of what the market really wants and the market being sort of the consumer, the people that are actually leasing space. And then you have to get creative in terms of deal structure. And I do think that like a lot can be solved with FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment, than like less building walls. And there's some new technology platforms that actually allow for the recycle of, of furniture and then the reinstallation of new furniture that fits a different function because that furniture really starts to kind of create a different vibe. But I think the biggest step is really taking inventory of what you own. And what's shocking to me too, is like, there's very few applications, you know, in the, in the real estate management space that actually allow people to understand their inventory management. There's a lot of things that manage leasing. (laughs) There's a lot of things that like manage, you know, cost structures, but nothing that really manages inventory. Like, you know, as if it were sort of a skew on the shelf and it's been sitting here for this long and how long did, you know, what can we do to sort of like turn that skew? What, what, just real quick, um, what, are you, what really, are you referring to as inventory, like actual like FF&E or inventory, like what is in my space, space? total space? Not space, wow. yeah. I mean, space is just like having, you know, kind of a skew or a bottle sitting on the shelf that hasn't moved, right? And a lot of owners have no idea how long that space is sat vacant or, you know, what are the dynamics taking inventory of why that skew isn't moving and what do you do to push it? right? What do you do to move it off the shelf? A lot of times people discount and owners aren't even doing that. And discounting could also mean like, what are you doing to add, you know, some space because, or add something to the space so that essentially a customer will actually lease it and use it and move that, move that inventory off the shelf. I mean, when you start to think about like vacant space within your building as actually inventory that's sitting there, that's costing you money and I haven't moved, then I think you act a little bit differently. And the real estate community is not viewed it that way. So I, 
I think that's a big piece is taking inventory of what you own, what you have, and what the customer wants, and then trying to fill the gap and mid- bridge the gap between those two things. Because there are, there, the leasing activity has picked up in this last quarter. Also, the net absorption has like dropped because we obviously we have more inventory kind of coming into the, the marketplace. But there are tenants out there that are actually leasing space. And if you're not getting any of it, you obviously don't have a product. And if your product is just competing on price, you're a commodity. And so how are you actually changing the product so it's not a commodity in the marketplace? And you, you, you actually have to offer product differentiation. And a lot of owners don't know how to do that because really their customer has been the capital markets and the people that buy the buildings at the end of the day. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. If our listeners want to find you, learn more about your thinking, be in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the best way to reach out is on LinkedIn, Lisa Picard. And another way is just, uh, I think, to follow my Medium channel. I think I'm going to be, I, I will be posting and writing more content there about sort of what I'm seeing and thinking. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Lisa. Great conversation. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.